What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com. And today I have special guest Stephanie Holbrook on the line. She is the expert in keto endurance. So I'm going to be picking her brain about all things endurance. Without further ado, how are you, Stephanie? I'm great. How are you, Robert? I am great. I'm great. We saw each other last at Keto, actually not KetoCon, the Low Carb Cruise, I believe, right? Well, I was at KetoCon, but you were super busy at your booth. Everybody was rocking the your new clothes, which actually were fabulous. I was like, oh, they all look fabulous. And then people, there were a ton of people around all tasting your keto brick. So yeah. I don't. I saw Crystal and I said hi, but I think you were too busy and you missed me. That was certainly not intentional. It was definitely a chaotic weekend, but I I loved every minute of it. It was I super did, fun. But what was great about the cruise is really to get to know the other speakers and the guests on the cruise, and um, it was a great time. I I loved it. Yeah, that is definitely one of the benefits of the low carb cruise when you're stuck on a ship for seven days with people that you're in the same community with. It's easier to kind of track them down and pick their brain because you're not liable to just jump off the ship, you know? <laughs> yes, I thought I agree. And I think that one of the nice things about this cruise, except for the fact that every, I mean, I've only been on one other keto cruise besides the one we went on uh, in May. Um, there was a lot more talk about fitness because I think there's a lot of talk about people when you first adapt to a ketogenic diet. But right now, there's people who've been doing a ketogenic diet for years, and and what's next? What's and I, I would like to think that some people would take up endurance sports, and and for you, uh, some folks take up bodybuilding. So I think mm -hmm. that that continuation of a keto lifestyle is really important. Hundred percent agree. I think, you know, looking at things through the the fitness and nutrition lens is twofold. Like it's it's great mm -hmm. to have the nutrition dialed in, but to really maximize the potential your body has with that, you know, better nutrition is to incorporate some type of fitness routine, whether that be, you know, endurance, uh, a specific sport, more of a heavy lifting, just something to activate the body um, and get the muscles stimulated and everything's just going to follow suit and be much more beneficial as a whole. Um, with, with that said, it's a great segue into your profession, kind of what your expertise is. So you're all about endurance. What what made you gravitate towards endurance in the first place as opposed to like a, you know, resistance training for instance? Initially what started me with endurance sports was uh I got a flyer in the mail from the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society about training for a marathon or half marathon and um to support the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and my brother had died of melanoma when he was 21 and one of the medications that the leukemia and lymphoma society developed uh, was used for melanoma so i wanted to support that organization and i signed up to train for a marathon and i i loved it i love the sense of camaraderie that you are out with your friends and um, you're moving together. I like to say endurance sports is socializing while moving forward and mm -hmm. just being outside in nature, which I like doing and having a specific goal to train for is motivating for me. 
And um, so I just fell in love with endurance sports. I went from marathon to uh, triathlons and then um, on to cycling. And I love all three, except for maybe I don't love swimming as much as the other things, but I... <laughs> but I've, I still like racing. Unfortunately, part of my story was I bought into the belief that carbohydrates were necessary and I needed to do a, um, a low fat, high carbohydrate diet to perform well. And I thought, you know, if I followed this program and ran enough and trained hard enough that I would end up being skinny and uh, fit and fast and that's not what happened eventually i started to um get fatter i actually never got skinny uh and then i started getting injuries that wouldn't heal and when i became very sick i used to have um chronic i used to have exercise induced asthma that became full-blown all the time asthma I had allergies that were horrible, and the more I trained, the worse everything got. So then I had to step back and, and really assess what was going on, and and I found Ben Greenfield and Paul Check and, and went to some of their certifications and then began that process of healing my body. And then I just started gravitating from, you know, first paleo, then keto paleo, and then keto, and then eventually carnivore. And right now, as we're talking, I have resolved most all of my issues, but I still haven't gotten that being thin thing yet. I just, uh, I don't have allergies. I don't have asthma. I feel better than when I was in my 20s, and I'm going to be 50 next month. In August 1st, I'll be 50. So I'm the healthiest and fittest in my life, but I'm I still haven't gotten that being thin part. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of funny you mentioned that because one of the, the commonly recurring themes at the low-carb cruise from the presentations was that being thin and being healthy are not one and the same. So, I mean, you, you are by no means overweight. I mean, I saw you, like, I saw you at low-carb cruise. Um, I mean, you, you look very healthy. Oh, thank you. But a lot of people you. have this idea that you have to be a certain weight on the scale in order to be, you know, considered healthy, which couldn't be farther from the truth. That's true. In fact, that's what my talk was on the low carb cruise is the differences between being fit and being healthy. And I used examples of very lean and fast athletes who had some pretty horrible things happen to them, like um, cancer, uh, diabetes, and heart attacks. So, um, and I appreciate I think that my distortion in my body image, some of it comes from being an endurance athlete because endurance athletes tend to be very small. And I definitely don't fit in that category and especially cyclist. And cycling is my primary sport. And I, I think it's my desire to, to be faster, especially climbing, that makes me want to be much smaller than I am. And maybe that's just a distorted body image on my part. So I thought that uh, Coach Lauren's talk about body dysmorphia was mm -hmm. uh, very uh, moving to me and um, very pertinent about like, you know, maybe I just have unrealistic goals. So that that could be it, too. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of crazy. Like the the 
longer, at least for me personally, the longer I've been in the sport of bodybuilding, you know, the the more self-aware I guess I've gotten with what my current physique is, what its potential is, and where I could go, you know, going forward. Um, but it, it seems like that's it almost just comes with time. So like the, the longer you're in a given given sport, given industry, the more realistic you get with how you perceive yourself. Um, but I got to imagine like with cycling, for instance, there's got to be a tipping point. I mean, the, the more, the more size you have, for instance, in your, your legs, the more power output, especially if that's predominantly muscle, that's going to contribute towards a better, you know, speed time, a better everything. So it's, it's kind of like, do you, do you want to be just smaller in general, or do you want to have the more, the, the higher power output? Well, I think that's a good question. And a lot of it is, you know, there are specific power to weight ratios that different types of cyclists are looking for as you know there's power to weight ratios for sprinters that you would ultimately have or for climbers or an overall cyclist and you know you can look up power to weight ratios of some elite women cyclists and sort of compare those to you know what I'm at now and I do have a fair amount of power. I can put my um, functional threshold power is, I don't remember what it is right now. I Last time I checked, it was around 170 watts. Um, but, you know, that's not, no matter how much power you have, if you're depending on the incline of the hill, if you are too heavy, you're not over going to come gravity. So that's, right, right. I mean, and so that's why cyclists want to be so light. They do want power, like I want more power, but I also, you know, want to counteract the that weight aspect of it. And specifically, I want to be lighter for an event called Tour the Gila, which is a for non-elite athletes. It's a four-day stage race in my hometown of Silver City, New Mexico, and it's super hilly, super mountainous. And I, my power to weight ratio right now is not where I could make even the time cutoffs because it's so hilly. I mean, probably maybe I can make the time cutoffs, but it's not definitely not where it needs to be. And so that's, that's my, a specific goal. And maybe that's just not a realistic goal for my physique, but I actually have an appointment with Dr. Nally tomorrow to look at my hormones and, um, you know, figure out if there's things I can do to become leaner so I can, um, or if it's, you know, if it's realistic or my goals realistic. So we'll see. But I think that, you know, that is a problem for a lot of people that, you know, having, um, well, I don't know if it's a problem for a lot of people. It's a problem for cyclists or um, endurance athletes wanting to to have certain body to weight ratios and power to be able to to perform better and um, not necessarily having the genetics that are going to be in alignment with that. When did you say that race was? That 40? It's not until May of next year, May of 2020. May of next year. That's the main thing you're training for at the moment? Yes. Uh, next, not this coming weekend, the following weekend, I'm going to go to 
Big Bear, California and do a tour of Big Bear, but um, that's more of a recreational thing. So in Big Bear, California, it's, I haven't signed up yet. So I'm deciding if I'm going to do the 55 miler or the 70 miler. It's pretty hilly there. But if you do, you have to do at least the 50 miler to get the ribs. They have ribs on the course. So that's a, that's a big incentive, I guess, for me. But it's for my 50th birthday. We're going on a trip. Very cool. Very cool. You ought to do the uh, the Ram on your 50th birthday as well. Oh, yes. The Race Across America? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, um, actually, I thought about doing Ram along um probably 10 years ago and um i i i know people who have supported teens doing ram but i i have um that's a lot of training to do race across america and uh yeah it's a big commitment and it's expensive you know just the cruise and paying for um your cruise hotel fees and all of that. I don't remember how much it was. It was, it was like buying a car because I looked into it. it. It This is kind of where it just blows my mind what's even humanly possible from an endurance standpoint. Like you hear of these ultra endurance athletes. I mean, a marathon itself is pretty impressive, but then you start hearing about these people that do ultra marathons of, you know, 200 milers. Now there's, I think, a 300 mile race. And then there's these race across America. So you're cycling literally from, is it Washington to Florida? Um, I think so. Oh my gosh, it was so long ago that I, um, I looked into it. Ram but route. It's just mind boggling. Let me look at that route. I do know a lot of ultra marathoners. I did ultra marathons for a while. And, and I think it's just depends on your, it's, no, it's, it's from the United States to, um, like Washington, DC. So it's, it is literally across America, not, not to Florida. It goes, it ends at, um, Annapolis, Maryland. Wow. Yeah. That's still pretty crazy. I mean, the thing that, I mean, it's just like nonstop all the way through to like people normally do it in what, about a week's time, I think. Yes. It depends on the person. Some people don't even sleep that much. Some people do. So it's, and then there's teams where they're continuously going 24 hours a day. You know, they just switch on and off. But yeah, it's a, it's a pretty um, extreme event. Although with endurance sports, if you keep your, if you work on your base, maximum aerobic function heart rate training. So it's Dr. Maffetone came up with this um, heart rate training formula and it's, called math maximum aerobic function heart rate if you really develop that aerobic system you can just keep going forever you know keep going until you you know burn out i when i was at my i guess peak endurance i felt like i could just not stop you know i could you know, as long as my heart rate was low enough i wouldn't need to stop except for i would still need to eat some and then i would need to rest eventually but i could go for you know days and days and days but you just get used to that i um and it's it's just a commitment in training it becomes like a lifestyle because that's who your friends are or people who who train for events and um 
and there's a little bit of peer pressure involved. I mean, people, I think it's funny, some folks who are afraid to show up for an endurance um, training events. We do a group training run here in Phoenix and a couple people are like, oh, I'm afraid to show up and um, that I'm doing to be too slow. And I'm like, that shouldn't be your fear when it comes to endurance athletes. Your fear should be they're going to try to talk you into doing events that you don't necessarily want to do because they're um, they'll say, oh, I'm training for this. You should train for that because they try to get a crowd to go with them to certain events. So, oh, I'm doing Ironman um, Arizona. Are you signed up? I mean, those are the questions. So it, it's more of uh, you shouldn't be afraid of not being included. You should be afraid of being included too much. So I think that that's, gotcha. that's sort of, um, I I think it. That, that makes sense for sure. Yeah. The camaraderie, I, I don't honestly know that much about the endurance uh, space. Like I've done that one marathon, but I'm not in that space by any means. But just at that one marathon, you know, the camaraderie, amongst the other athletes was was pretty pretty impressive like you don't see that in a lot of team-based sports that's why i'm a huge fan of individual sports like like bodybuilding for instance um but like when you get there at the event and everybody's you know been training hard or working hard towards this for this one moment when everybody's backstage or on the field or running or whatever it may be it seems like everybody's genuinely in support of everybody doing the best they can helping in any way they can yes especially um not as much with bike racing teams because they're on specific teams and they have strategies to, to beat each other, but in individual time sports. So um, an example would be a triathlon. There's no drafting or team effort in a triathlon unless you're doing a, a relay. And um, but triathlons have a really huge sense of camaraderie, marathons, half marathons. Um, 10Ks or and century bike rides or what they call t-shirt rides, so endurance um, events, they they want more people out there. The people who are there like more people to be there. And it's just they're, they tend to be, their personalities tend to be pretty social people. So I think that that's why they're so inviting. That makes sense for sure. I want to dive into some of the specific training, you know, techniques that you incorporate yourself, both for running and for, for cycling. So talk about a little bit um, with regarding the aerobic, you know, bringing up the aerobic conditioning. How, how do you kind of dive into that Maftone method, I guess would be okay. a good place to start. Well, what I do with my athletes, we do what's called periodized training, and I match their nutrition to their training. It's periodized training. So it or periodized nutrition. And what that means is we break up the season into different sections, which I, I know that other sports do this too. So it's not like it's, um, it, this is a new concept, but so we break up the training into different blocks and there's the first, you want to plan anywhere from 16 to 24 weeks to train for an event sometimes longer you know or um so let's say you're training for an ironman you probably would want like two half ironmans in that season and most not so much anymore but when i was doing triathlon you know long course triathlons you had to sign up a year in advance anyway then you would try to pick two one or two half ironmans during the period 
um, to train for that. So the first phase of training is the prep period. And this is really where you're getting your body ready to build a foundation. And this phase of training, you want to be full keto and then also get a posture assessment to find out if you have your muscle um, imbalances or any um, discrepancies in your posture. And then you start going towards the base period of training and you're building a foundation of fitness. And this is where you're using, you know, you're following Maffetone method heart rate training. And this base period can be anywhere from eight to 12 weeks. So you're just building a bigger foundation. You're trying to grow the mon grow mitochondria, you know, grow capillaries, you know, build a big metabolic engine. And so this is pretty generic compared to what your course is going to look like. So you're not doing course specific training. Then after your base period, you go to your build period of training. And this period of training, we switch from Maffetone method heart rate training to lactate threshold or percentage of your max heart rate based training. And so this part of training, it's where your training is going to look like your event. So if you have a, a very steep hilly course, or uh, then you're going to be riding a lot of hills. If you have a flat course you're doing, you're going to be riding um, you know, on, a, on flat terrain. And at the build period, you're also adding in carbohydrates during your training as long as you don't have some um some folks don't do well with adding in carbohydrates either because they have carbohydrate addiction or food addictions and it triggers them to eat more carbohydrates or um you know they have other specific issues but if somebody who's training to go faster carbohydrates do make you faster. So there's all kinds of studies on this. It's just that we talk about adding in carbohydrates strategically where you're not, um, they're not staying in your system. You're using them to fuel your training sessions, but then we keep them out of your, of your body on rest days so that, um, so you're not becoming insulin resistant. Like as many as half of endurance athletes have some form of insulin resistance or reactive hypoglycemia, which is um, something you definitely want to avoid. So after the build period, then is the peak period. So then it's a taper. You, you're going to back off your training and keep some intensity in there to maintain your fitness. So you're peaking on race day. And you're also backing off the carbohydrates that you added to really resensitize you. Then it's um, race period. So either, you know, it's one day event like an Ironman or it could be multi-day events like the Tour de France or, um, or Ram Race Across America. And then after that, the transition period, you go back to full keto and you rest and recover and then you start planning again. So I hope that that made sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What was the very first period called? It's the prep period. So that's where you're doing really assessing if you have any muscle imbalances or posture discrepancies because you don't want to start building. You don't start start training if you have, um, like, let's say you have 
weak hamstrings compared to your quads, like your quad dominant, you want to do some work in the gym to correct that, or maybe have forward head posture or kyphosis or, you know, all kinds of posture discrepancies. Um, you want to address those before you start adding volume to your training. So in order, it goes prep, base, build, race, or peak, then race, race. And then transition, which is the recovery period, which it seems like a lot of endurance athletes forget that you need some time to rest. And uh, doing um, destination races, this is actually a good time you go to a race and then you, you do your race and then you have vacation the week after and sort of makes like a nice family trip. I mean, a lot of endurance athletes gotcha, do that. that. You don't want the race at the end of your vacation because that might interfere with your family time. But are you using any kind of uh, like Garmin, you know, trackers or anything to to make sure you're staying within a certain target? Yeah. Heart well, what I use is a program called Training Peaks, and Training Peaks is a platform that calculates a lot of this information. For me, you're either a Garmin or a Polar or a Wahoo. Um, there's lots of devices that sync with it. So as soon as the athlete's done, it'll sync with training peaks and I get an alert and I can look at what my athletes are doing. And it's convenient because I can look and see if uh, they are um, following what I'm telling them to. Some athletes, I have to tell them, you really need to slow down during this phase of training and they don't like it very much sometimes because uh, to build a big aerobic engine, sometimes whenever you're using Maffetone heart rate training, it's often lower than what people are accustomed to training at. And they have to walk during their run training sessions initially at first, but um, it pays off later at the end. Uh, a famous triathlete uh, or well-known triathlete, Mark Allen, was coached by Dr. Maffetone, and he was already an elite athlete when he started the Maffetone method of training. And he had to walk up hills, and he was very um, disgruntled about it. But Dr. Maffetone was like, just stick with it, and you will, it'll pay off. And that's what I tell my athletes stick with it because you will be able to produce more power at a higher rate, heart rate, or a lower heart rate. So that's really the goal is to produce more ATP or more power at the lowest heart rate sustainable. So um, the higher your heart rate gets, there's a limit to that. But if you can maintain a lot of power at a lower heart rate, you can just go faster and further than other athletes. So like, let's just use me as a hypothetical example. If I'm in the build phase and I'm trying to incorporate the Maffetone method, what what does a typical week of training look like if I'm doing a marathon? Okay, so well, if you're in the build method, we've already switched to lactate threshold training. So it's the base period that you're doing maffetone heart rate there. training. So let's say, what's your, um, how old are you, Robert? 27. 27. And let me figure out. So it's 180 minus your age. So you're... Your maffetone heart rate, your max heart rate would be 153 as long as you are have not been sick in the last year or two 
and you've been training for over a, a year or so. If you've been ill or you have any allergies or any metabolic problems, you would subtract five or 10, depending on how ill you've been from that. So that's not your average that you would want to train at. That would be, you don't want your heart rate to go above that. And usually with my um, clients, uh, they, they have alerts on their GPS devices a lot of times. I will knock off a couple beats, like a, like if you were my client, I would have the structured training to be 151 or 150. So it would alert you if your heart rate's raising above that. So it'll, um, you'll get a notice, you know, it'll, depending on how they have the setting set up, it'll vibrate or, or ring a bell to slow down. Is there a particular frequency I should be striving for? Like over the course of a week, for instance, if I'm trying to keep my heart rate below 150 beats per minute within a given training session, do I need to be, you know, training every other day or? Well, it depends on your annual training plan. So we set up a, an annual training plan based on your A race, your primary race that you're going to do. And then I use, it's called um, a training, chronic training load or training stress score of your current level of fitness compared to elite or you know similar athletes depending on your goal so i have a chart that i used and it's um it's provided by the sports physiologist named alan cousins and i use his recommendations for chronic training load so it depends on the volume of the event you're doing so let's say you are planning to do a um, a marathon and you're planning to finish in between three to eight hours and you are a new athlete. So you've never done an event before. I would pick something, your chronic training load as about 30, 31, um, 30, your CTL, I, my goal is 31 and CTL is a combination of volume and intensity for a given week. I know this is like, I feel like a lot of information that no, no, terms that you probably don't know. So I would base your week's training based on your certain level of fitness and what your goals are. So if you were trying to train for the Boston Marathon and you're an elite athlete and you are, um, you know, been training for for a couple of years, your the chronic training load volume would be about 115. That's like the high end. That's someone who's, um, so that's a, a chronic training load is based on the six week running average of your um, training stress score. Training stress score is based on your threshold, which a threshold is what uh, activity that you can do in an hour. So there's threshold power, threshold pace, threshold heart rate. So if you test yourself in an hour, whatever that number is, that's your threshold. So what would a, a CTL of, you said 115, look like in like a week's time span? Are they trying to average a certain number of miles at a given pace? Not necessarily miles. It's based on, so if you're using, um, that would be at least, um, 115 would be 15 it's about 
it's at threshold 15 hours of training, but it's more than 15 hours or 11.5 hours of training, but you can't train it at threshold intensity for 11 and a half hours. So it would be um, stretched out. So like, let's say, you know, you have three sessions. Well, if you're base building it, I mean, it, there's, there's a lot of factors that go into that. I'm like, that's a, that's a hard question because there's different factors that, yeah, that go into it and different intensities in the part of the season that you're in. So, right. I'll use my example of, um, so right now, before I do, there is an event in the Gila called tour of the Gila that I'm training for. And I have an annual training plan set up. And my, my goal is to have a chronic training load of 105. And so that would be my peak week has a training stress score of 1200, which is the week of September 23rd to the 29th. And then I can figure out by volume and intensity based on my threshold that um, how much, how many hours that is. Let me go to that week. Yeah, it's a little, a little complicated. <laughs> so, yeah. No, it's good. This I'm, I'm getting enlightened here. Um, what what about the the build phase? You said you're you're taking an emphasis from the Mafto method and putting it on like lactate threshold. How are you determining that? Okay, well, you switch, we do a lactate threshold test. So whenever we switch to the phases of training, I use the program for the lactate threshold test. Is that a, is it like a, a software-based test or? Well, you use your, you can use your Garmin for it. So let me, I have a description here. So let me pull that up. So it's um, because I don't like, being cold and I don't like air conditioners. I keep our, my thermostat set at 82, which is Oh, I don't warm. think I can make it. Yeah, which is warm for a lot of people, but I don't like being cold. That makes sense then, I reckon. So the lactate threshold is your ma maximum sustainable feet speed with good form um, at 20 minutes. So it, it's like just where you're pushing yourself hard. And um, then we use the tr training peak zones um, set up by Dr. or not Dr. But Joe Frill has, I use his lactate threshold zones to figure out and, what zones to be in. And that would be based off of whatever your, your sport is. So whether it be like running, so what, what right. distance could you run? Or not what distance, but what intensity at 20 minutes uh, could you run without having any poor form? Right, with um, good form. Right. Gotcha. Yeah, and so then, and then from that, you determine your your peak um, intensity. You said I determine five heart rate zones. So one, two, three, four, and five, and then five is five A and five B. But I um, I try to keep in. So when you switch to lactate threshold, all the the training is in one, two, or you know four, five, we stay out of zone three because that's like the, it's called polarized training. So most of the volume of your training is going to be still in zone one, two, and that may or may not match your Maffetone heart rate training. 
So that's mm-hmm. um, that's when we we switch to um, lactate threshold. Some people's oh, what was that? Oh, a little beep on my thing. And some people's mafetone heart rate will be higher than their zone two, and some people uh, will be lower. But we just we're sticking to the polarized training, and then we still have some intense intervals in there to in you know increase fitness and get your your heart rate up so it just depends on the i mean what i use is a program for cyclists and they even have a, a similar program for runners it's called best bike split and where i can upload the course that the cyclist is doing and then i can match their training or what their threshold power is and figure out what different sections of you know, what different phases of the course looks like and what their estimated time is, and then figure out workouts that are going to match. Like, let's say they have a a six-mile climb at 220 watts, then I can give them, you know, different intervals of, well, let's do six minutes instead of six miles, like a six-minute, I can give them six-minute intervals with recovery and and that so it sort of prepares them for those specific sections of the course. Gotcha, gotcha. With regard to the lactate threshold, have you, I assume you've probably done that test over the past several years, kind of as you've been experimenting with different training styles? Yeah, well, and I also use, you can go through people's workouts. I use a lot of times power because I'm a cyclist and I'm mostly riding my bike, but there is a power meter for runners too. And then um, match it to lactate threshold of heart rate. So it, I have it automatically set up where it adjusts with the training peaks. Have you noticed that your lactate thresholds improved uh, as you manipulated your nutrition to be more ketone based? Um, yeah, I mean, somewhat my heart rate is my, my lower heart rate is lower and is my max heart rate is higher and my zone two is lower than it used to be, but I've been following Mm -hmm. a ketogenic diet for 10 years. So I'm not, you know, it's not new for me. I do notice that, um, so I, I think it's hard for me to say for me personally that, um, and when I switched to a ketogenic diet, I was um, in a phase of recovery because I had so many, I was healing, that when I started training again, I had already adapted. And I can say compared to where I was before, you have my lactate threshold, I have a higher um I have a higher lactate threshold than I did before I started when I was a a carbohydrate based athlete. And something that I would like to add about um lactate um it is you're going to have less lactate as a um so I guess you could say that the the test is a little um, distorted because as an endurance athlete, you're going to have less lactate burning ketones than you are as a glucose dependent athlete. So you're not going to feel the burn like a lot of people feel the burn 
because lactate is a product of sugar metabolism, glucose metabolism. So you can, um, an example of this is when uh, I was doing a week fast and I was doing some intervals um, at the end, the last couple days of the week fast, which I will say um, I wouldn't recommend this because it did mess up my hormones a little bit. But I, I had less exhaust, you know, when you're breathing out, when you exhale, that's exhaust from your body. It's not that you breathe in, you are breathing in to get more oxygen, but when you breathe out, it's your body exhausting waste. And some of that waste is, uh, you know, uh, lactate. If you're breathing hard, you're breathing hard to get more rid of more waste um, in the body. So uh, when doing intense intervals, as a keto adapted athlete, you're going to feel like um, you're not going to feel the burn like a sugar dependent athlete. So I, I hope that makes sense. But it's like you're not going to feel the same level of burning in your legs. That doesn't mean your legs aren't still going to get tired. You still have to train, but you're not going to feel the same level of burn that you would. Um, as a sugar dependent athlete. So when you're doing, I hope I'm answering this question right for you. Yeah, yeah, for Robert, sure. is that you're still, no, even though we're measuring lactate threshold, I guess we could call it like um, pace threshold, 20 minute pace threshold, um, because you're not, you're not gonna feel the same as a glucose dependent athlete as you are as a, um, as a fat adapted athlete when you do a lactate threshold test you're not going to feel the same burn it's not going to be you're just going to feel like your legs are heavy and they don't won't go any faster than they're going yeah the um your lactate clearance improves the more keto adapted you are so that would kind of help minimize any of that burn as well which honestly that's probably one of the reasons why so many people once they switch over to keto at least from the resistance training background that i am i i I hear a lot of people say they don't get near as sore during the workouts, that they don't have that just wall they hit, that fatigue. And then also, like from an anti-inflammatory standpoint, they're able to, uh, you know, get back in the gym at a greater frequency because they don't have as much inflammation as they did before. Yes. So that is true. And um, although it's still, um, when you, uh, people tend to, to recover faster. And one of the reasons they recover faster is not only because of that, that you're not producing the same amount of lactate, but the you're also not creating the same damage in your body, like the um, AEG's advanced glycation end product, when you're consuming a lot of carbohydrates, which still most endurance athletes fall into this category. They're consuming a ton of carbohydrates because they're told that's what they have to do. That that amount of carbohydrate, regardless if you are fat or thin or lean or whatever, it still globs onto the protein in your blood and um, it eventually will raise your um, A1C. A1C. I was like, but that advanced glycation end product, that those that sugar sticking to those red blood cells is still creating damage in the body. So even if you're thin 
that still creates damage that the body has to recover from. So that's still recovering. You know, the reason why people feel like they recover faster, it's not, it's because there's actual less damage being done to the body. I mean, you want some damage to be done because that's what's telling the body to adapt to it, to get stronger, but there's less inflammation, less other damage because there's not, you know, all these needles, basically that's what this um, advanced glycation in product, you know, doing in your body is creating a, a lot of damage internally that it has to recover from as well. Yeah, that's why it's it's sad to see some of these, you know, really high-end athletes that are very thin, so they assume that nothing's wrong with them because they're performing well, at least at the onset that, that appears as such. They don't have a lot of weight to lose, but they're, you know, insulin resistant. They have these elevated A1Cs and their inflammation's through the roof. It's like, th those are the ones where you hear about having serious issues because they don't catch it in time. That's why no matter what your physical composition looks like, it's worthwhile to get these basic tests done. Right. And and not to assume just because you have good body composition that you are you're okay. I I've worked with athletes who literally cannot gain weight. And they um the body does some other weird things if it is not good at storing fat. I mean at the um that's what one of the speakers at the low carb cruise was talking about this disorder. I mean, I didn't have an athlete with this disorder, but he did have a hard time gaining weight, but he, his body produced high triglycerides and which is scary. And we did a couple little tweaks to, to his diet, mainly switched his industrial seed oils to, to animal fats and, and natural fats and uh lowers carbohydrates and then everything got into an alignment and he was he was fine so it's um but he thought he was so shocked when he went to the doctor and he got this uh notice that you know you have high triglycerides and your blood pressure is increasing and so it's not i think it's those folks are the most unsuspecting whenever not to say it's a benefit to be heavy or, or, or fat, but if your body is good at making fat, it's good at protecting those internal processes that are damaged by, um, by sugar going through the body. So that's, uh, I think one of the, Rob Wolf talks a lot about that, is that when um, fat is a protection, and if your body's not able mm -hmm. to make fat, you know, what's going on that it's not being protected? Absolutely. Talk to me a little bit about the uh, the the pose method, like your running technique. What is okay. that exactly? So the pose method of running is a lot of folks think that running is just the most natural thing in the world, and you can just go out and go run, and um, all you need is a pair of shoes and legs, and you can train for a marathon. Well, unfortunately, it's a sad statistic that about eighty-two percent of endurance athletes endurance athletes, sorry, runners become injured each year. So, and a lot of that is due to poor running form or poor run technique that people just assume that they, you know, I running is just one foot in front of the other. And if you were before the age of five, before you start school, that would probably be the case, just putting one front 
in front of the other and just running around, you're not likely to get injured. But this thing happens about five years old, we start to go to school and sit in desks and that changes the way our body, our muscles are balanced and our changes our movement patterns. So unless you were one of those folks who continued to run inside you know, and outside of school, and maintain that good run form, you probably have some postural distortions and um, also muscle memory that has changed your movement patterns. And all the pose method is, it's a program put together by Dr. Romanoff and he looked at elite runners and noticed they all went through three distinct poses. It's the, the pose, which is your leg is in a fi figure four method. Um, the fall where you're falling forward and then um, the pull where you're pulling the opposite foot off the ground and if you go through those three poses efficiently then you're going to be a good runner and if you take a really long time and not very efficient through those um, three poses then you're likely to be going to be either a slow or injured runner and some of the injuries tend to be um, high hamstring tendinopathy, that's a timing issue, uh, plantar fasciitis, um, uh, Achilles tendon problems, messed up knees, uh, IT band syndrome, those are all symptoms of poor run form. And what we do with our athletes is we, we go through exercises and drills to, to see to reprogram the body to move correctly. So whenever they are running, they've reprogrammed that muscle memory and rebalanced those muscles so they have good run form. I hope that made sense. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, for sure. I've been experimenting a little bit with my running. I, I'm a, like, I don't do a whole lot of endurance training, but I do like to run just as a way to disconnect and, you know, keep my cardiovascular system humming along. And I've got... I don't know, a terrible flat feet. They got like the flattest feet ever. So I've got this uh, pain in my left ankle, which I assume comes from that. So I've been trying to tweak my, my running form a lot lately. What do you think about like shoes, like with regard to the support? A lot of people are going for this minimalist approach, like Zach Bitter, for instance, is all about the ultra footwear that's very minimalist in design. Well... I am a fan of minimalist footwear because it forces your body to move correctly. The thing is, a lot of people switch from heavily padded shoes to minimalist or zero drop shoes without giving their body time to adapt. So for you, if you were you know, my client or even you know, people are listening to this, I would um, get some either I use um, some I use zero drop shoes, but um, I use Merrill something, something that um, and then do the post method drills and then jog a little bit and you can make it into a workout. My clients, I just have one specific drill they're working on for that workout. And then um, so I have a warm up, do the drill, run, do the drill, run, do the drill, run. And what what you're doing through repetition is just reprogramming the way the body moves. And then switch back. So don't go full, full on to this minimal shoe without giving yourself, like, let's say you walk around, um, you do one workout in minimal shoe, and then you use your regular shoes that you were wearing for a day, 
I mean, just toggle it back and forth. Don't go, I'm going to buy minimalist shoes, then go run a half marathon. Like that's a really bad idea. So, uh, because it takes your body time to adapt. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I, uh, I used to run in cowboy boots when I was a kid. That probably wasn't the best thing for my feet either. <laughs> well, they are zero. Well, they're not zero drop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Screwed yeah. up my ankles from the, from the beginning. Um, what about the, what about cycling? Yeah. I'm going to talk a little bit about cycling because I'm thinking of getting into that, but I'm kind of gravitating more towards like, I don't know, I'm not going to be doing the Tour de France anytime soon, but something like just simple mountain biking, but you, you're more towards the road biking, right? I am a pretty hardcore roadie. <laughs> so I'm not a, I have a mountain bike, but mountain biking and road biking are I mean, I guess the biggest similarities are that they have two wheels, but that's yeah. about it. They're so different in uh, in how you you ride, and some of it depends on. So, true mountain biking is pretty technical. So they are going over like giant rocks, going over logs and stuff like that. There's sort of a middle ground, which is gravel bike which is sort of a knobby tire road bike it has wider tires and some of them even have a tiny bit of suspension and i um i think i would be interested in that but mountain biking a lot of people think because it's you know you're sitting up more upright has shocks that it's um easier than road biking and i would say it's not easier but it's it's just different and there's certain skills that go along with that. If you want to take up, I think, well, regardless if you take up road biking or mountain biking, look into taking some sort of skills clinic that teaches you basic skills of going over obstacles or cornering and turning. I teach a skills clinic for road biking, but um, it's just to get some fundamentals to get comfortable unless you're just planning to ride like around the block or you know i was talking to a girl and talking about this she goes i'm just planning to get a bike to ride to the grocery store so that's a little different than what i think of about mountain biking or road biking you don't need all those things if you're just planning to ride to the park with right kids, right but yeah traditional mountain biking is incredibly technical which i i can see myself going that direction maybe sometime in the future but not for quite some time. The the gravel bikes, like that's that's a pretty new term, isn't it? I haven't seen that until here recently. Yes. Uh, gravel's just gotten really big. I don't know really the history behind it. A lot of people have adopted gravel because it gets, you know, if you've been in cycling a long enough time, you have friends or people you know who've been really hurt badly or killed on a road bike because of the drivers out there. So that's why a lot of people have gone to gravel because it's on dirt, but it's not so technical as road biking. And I think that it's probably the best of both worlds. You're still outdoors, which you know, one of the reasons I like road biking and, and endurance sports is because I just like being outside and enjoying nature. So you get that aspect of it typically on um, you know, dirt roads or dirt paths that are not technical, you know, there's not going to be traffic. You may have walkers, but it's, you know, it's a nicer, it's a more calm environment, even though they do have gravel races and cyclocross races. But um, 
it's just a nice combo of like, you know that it's not going to be technical because it's suitable for a gravel bike, but it's not going to be where there's a lot of traffic like in a road bike. Are those gravel bikes like equipped with the shocks and the suspension systems or are they pretty much just a road bike with they're knobby like, tires? They're like a road bike with bigger forks and knobby tires and typically they have disc brakes. Some of them have a little tiny bit, uh, like a little one inch shock, um, but not, you know, it depends on which one you get. I'm going to look into this for sure. There's a whole bunch of, um, like Arkansas where I'm, where I'm located is actually one of the top you know, bike trail states in the U.S. So I haven't even taken advantage of that opportunity. And I don't know, I feel like biking is just a really good way to, you know, get that cardiovascular activity in, but not put near as much, you know, stress on your joints as, as running would be. Well, yes, gravel or biking is great for your cardiovascular system. But if you are, um, if there's a lot of stress going on in your joints, it's probably due to poor run form. Gotcha. So that's um, because so be whenever you have, <laughs> so whenever you have good run form, your it's the your foot's designed to handle the shock. Your forefoot because those um, joints all spread out when you land and it absorbs the shock, and then your heel just barely touches the ground. They say kiss the ground, so it's not like you're running on your toes. You're still your heels touching the ground, and then you spring off. And if, as long as you have 180 steps per minute uh, cadence, that gives your body, your tendons, muscle tendon elasticity. It gives a spring back effect and um, helps propel you forward and helps keep those timing of your hamstrings in, in alignment so you won't get spasms in your hamstrings. But um, so that's... If you have, if you are a runner and you have pain, it's likely either you didn't build a big enough base or you have poor, poor run form. So I'm sorry, Robert, I didn't mean to just go back, take you away from. No, you're good. You're good. This is, this is a good, this is a good segue actually, because I've, I've been curious. There's like, everybody's got this different stance on proper, you know, foot to ground mechanics while running and you've heard that like heel striking is bad so you you see people trying to overcorrect and do like a toe strike it's i think midfoot is is kind of where people should gravitate towards like is it like a right or wrong way to have a striking pattern or how how do you how do you suggest well, about that? so where your foot lands is an effect of of whether you're going to be you know you're you have a good stability on one leg your lean and your pull so you're you never want your foot to land so if you took a plumb bob where um and put it attached you know like you said you know, like if you had a big long gigantic earring and it um went to the ground you want never want your foot to be landing in front of like that where your your head is so it's more of a i'm trying to the way they phrase it is like it's not you have injuries it's not an effect of your where your foot lands your foot lands is an effect of where your form is taking you so you wouldn't be able to have a heel strike if you had proper form and it's not necessarily a forefoot um strike but it's a little bit back but it's not exactly in the midfoot it's just your your foot's landing 
underneath your body was some what I'm trying to say but so you're not um you shouldn't be focusing on where your foot's falling you should be focusing on do you have stability on one leg do you have the proper lean and are you pulling up your opposite leg efficiently so and are you moving at a, at least 180 beats per minute is the cadence of your movement patterns gotcha do you use like a like a metronome, metronome. or any kind of mm -hmm. yeah yeah you, you can I use, I, sometimes we have group runs and um, we have a metronome playing. I, I do my group runs with another coach and she has music that's 180 beats per minute. And then they have a metronome, which I guess that sounds a little confusing, but we're not always running with the same person. So they, um, there's music you can download onto your iPod. That's 180 beats per minute. And, um, or you can use a metronome. Some people don't like to have music, but, um, I think it's very helpful to make sure you get that cadence. No, that makes sense for sure. And that, that's that's just going to ensure that you're, if you're going at that pace, you'll likely, you'll be more likely to be forward enough in your alignment position that you would be having the proper form, correct? Correct. So just having the proper pace um, is, uh, fixes a lot of things. So a lot of runners have high hamstring tendinopathy, and that means that their um, their leg, so where they land, the trailing leg, they don't pull it up efficiently enough, and um, and usually it's through slow cadence, and it it causes spasms way up in the the top of the hamstring. So if you are a runner and you feel like someone is taking a knife and jamming it right underneath your butt. Um, that's high hamstring tendinopathy. It's very, very painful. <laughs> so it's a, and that's usually a timing issue or you're not pulling your foot up off the ground very efficiently. Gotcha. I don't have any hamstring pain, so I don't think I'm suffering from that at all, but I will, I'm going to, I'm going to dive into this. I'm actually going to go for a run this evening. So I'll play around with my form and my pace a little bit and see if I can get this dialed in. So go to YouTube, Robert, and type in pose method drills. And um, look up pulling drills, because I think that's I what will help that. you if you have ankle pain, is the pulling drill. All right, I will do that. I'll look up some gravel bikes, and uh, I'll be good to go. <laughs> <laughs> the all kinds of stuff that's so fun about endurance. I feel like um, when a lot of times people hire me just for, they hire me for the nutrition stuff, for the keto adaptation. And the first thing is they're like, you're asking me to add in carbohydrates. I'm like, not all the time, just sometimes and see how you do. So that's one, I guess, pushback I get back. And then other things are like, I'm not, I don't just do nutrition stuff. I, I put in program stuff like run form technique and looking at posture and, you know, I add strength training to my workouts. So it's, uh, I think that, you know, there's more to coaching than just, even though I am keto endurance, than just the nutrition. There's more more to it than the, the plan. Yeah, for sure. And there's a lot more to, to training and fitness than just, you know, one or the other. I see a lot of people in the bodybuilding space, you know, knocking endurance athletes and vice versa. But I think, you know, you really have to have a, a balance or some kind of segue so that you're able to do and perform at a certain degree with both. Because if you don't have the 
proper cardiovascular strength, you're, you're going to suffer in the, in the weight room and, and vice versa. So they're, they're symbiotic in nature in that regard. Yeah. And also, like, you have to think about navigating through life. Like, what do you want to do in life? Do you, I used to, uh, when I was in the National Guard, I had, um, there were some bodybuilder, a um, couple bodybuilders, and we would go on these long hikes and they would be completely exhausted because they are carrying around, they're not, they, their cardiovascular system wasn't developed. You know, if you want to hike the Grand Canyon, you want to have a good cardiovascular system. But if you want to take dog food out of your car, you want to be strong and know how to lift correctly. Like if you want to, you know, go to a theme park with your kids or grandkids, you want to be able to be able to last the whole day without getting tired. So I think that it's, I enjoy being outside. So that's one of the reasons why I enjoy endurance sports, but I still lift weights because I don't want to have muscle imbalances and I still want to be able to bring in heavy things from the car and not have to worry about it. So I think thinking about navigating through life um, should be part of anybody's fitness plan. Completely agree. There's, there shouldn't be this separation. There should, you should look at things more holistically. You know, what, what can you do that's going to en enhance the overall as it relates to what you're wanting to do in life, how you want to spend your time. So could not agree more with you on that one. Yes. Well, Stephanie, you, you have the, the four day bike. Well, what was the name of that again? Tour of the Gila. The one next year? Tour yes, of the Tour Gila. of the Gila. Gotcha. And that and is in next May, you said? It starts next next May yes and it's a it's a road race and then time trial criterium and then another road race are there any other big big things you have coming up or is that pretty much the well tour of the big bear is in a couple weeks and then I'm doing um it's called the Gila Grand Fondo which is one of the days of of the event that I'm I'm doing so um, that I plan to do. So that's in October. So after Tour of Big Bear, I'm going to train for Tour of the Gila. But first I need to, I want to see Dr. Nally. I'm seeing, like I actually made an appointment a couple of weeks ago, but it takes a couple of weeks to get into him. That my appointment's tomorrow and I'm going to see what my hormones look like. Because I, I have been training, but I have not been recovering like I want to, and my diet has been pretty dialed in, although I just recently gave up dairy because I was talking to another coach, and she was like, you know, dairy takes 60 days to get out of your system, and I mm. have given up for 30 days and had not seen a difference, so I'm... um I'm going to try giving it up for 60 days because I to see if that makes a difference in my hormones and how... Feel, how I, well, I recover. And then maybe I'm just not recovering because it's a hundred and something degrees outside. And when I train, even though, you know, I'm outside at five 30 in the morning, it's still about 85 degrees. So I don't know, maybe it's just my perceptions off. And there's I've, a lot of, a lot of variables at play when it comes to why your body's responding a certain way in recovery. I mean, right now, like I'm training, uh, in a warehouse gym with no, no air conditioning. And it's totally different than what it's like you know, in the cooler months, like all those different stimuli have an effect on the body that's hard to pinpoint and quantify in one instance, you know? Yeah. I And it's, for, I don't know about you, but it's frustrating to me because I have on my training plan, I want to do a four hour bike ride and I go out in an hour and I'm like, ugh, 
I'm done. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> no, I totally understand. Well, definitely keep me posted on the, uh, the hormone check. Like I'm curious to see how any results you get back from that. And then just in general, like I'm have to have you back on the podcast here after you get some answers there and, and how that impacts, if it does impact your training going forward. Oh, I would love to talk to you again. And so fun talking to you. And I don't know if we're still recording, but to your listeners, Robert and his wife, Crystal, are as nice in person as they sound online. They're like, your wife is like the sweetest, most adorable thing. And then they're pretty awesome, too. So I, it was such a pleasure to get to know you and Crystal on the cruise. And um, you're just, uh, I love all the stuff you're doing and wish you all the best. No, I really do appreciate that. That means the world. Where, where can uh, people go to find out more about you and follow along and see how you're doing? I am at ketoendurance.co, not com, .co. And if you go to ketoendurance.co, you can download a free guide on becoming a keto adapted athlete. And it has, this, it includes those phases of training that I'm, that I talk about, um, that we covered. So the prep phase, what, what your diet wants, you want your diet to look like and your training to look like during that phase of training. And you can, you know, plan out your own training schedule. You pick your race date and then you sort of back out those different phases um, to, to figure out what you want to emphasize during that time period. Very cool. I will definitely be checking that out myself and I'll link to it as well. So anybody that's interested can check it out as well. Thank you so much. Very cool. Absolutely. Well, Stephanie, it's, it's been a pleasure as always. I will certainly be in touch. Let me know if anything pops up as far as, you know, your hormone results. I'd be curious to know what you find out there. And if there's anything I can do for you in the meantime, definitely don't hesitate to reach out. All right. Thank you so much, Robert. I would love to have you on my podcast sometime and talk about weightlifting because I have questions for you. Absolutely. Just let me know and I'm there. Okay. Awesome. Thank you, Robert. Take care. <laughs>